Hello, and welcome to episode number 14 of Stride and Saunter. I'm one of your hosts, Kip Clark. And my name is Hector Moreira. And today we're very happy and privileged to be joined by our first guest and friend of the show, Armand Hernandez. So Armand, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and also why we're here today? Sure thing. I'm an English major focusing on Victorian studies. And today, I think we should focus on censorship and what censorship means today in our society, especially as we are closely connected with the internet. So I would like to kind of start with opening up just an example of censorship and how it's regulated today. There's actually a whole industry devoted to censoring images on media, stuff that we kind of take for granted. For instance, if Facebook was not regulated, there'd be a whole slew of images that would probably disturb us and we would not like. For instance, currently in the Philippines, there is a industry that has over 100,000 people, mostly college grads, who are going through media and deleting from that media stuff that users find inappropriate. Now, we, I think we need to take into consideration how we do that through our discourse, or how we then build our discourse through ideas of, say, for instance, confronting something in which we find troubling or something that we do not enjoy. For instance, today, we'll probably, in fact, inhabit that realm. Also, in lieu of current controversy in Kenyan in the past few weeks, Yik Yak, as you may know, the social media site in which you can post anonymously within your area, produced a lot of controversy throughout campus. And um, I was hoping we could maybe touch on that, as well as a larger discourse on censorship. Definitely. So where would you like to begin? Well, I think, first of all, for me, I advocate censorship in the sense that it not only regulates our discourse, but then we also regulate what should be censored or maybe what should be considered more hotly, as opposed to just saying some authoritarian statement is like, that shouldn't be said at all. So in discussing ideas, we then can kind of grow and build on those ideas. For instance, to uh, say or have a negative opinion of something or maybe something that strikes someone as negative in discussion can be easily regulated through someone's opinion, someone else's opinion, a differing opinion. And from there, we just grow our discourse. But on anonymous sites, for instance, throughout most of the internet, a lot of discourse, I think, is stalled through hatred, negativity, and different kind of biases that just go off the radar because they are anonymous. And I honestly do believe that those ideas projected in the internet, on the internet can actually affect our society because not only do we then think, oh, well, it's not for me to even really care because this is anonymous or whatever, it doesn't really affect me. I think that does, in fact, affect our consciousness in terms of, well, what if someone says this on my campus? Eh, it's whatever. At the same time, we cannot fall into the fear of having to censor and dysregulate because that will then validate certain opinions. So there's a hot tension that we have to kind of tease out to understand more of how our sensibilities function, especially in a, in a world, a society that is so closely related to the internet. Yeah, I agree. I think you make a very good point that it's not always the negative thing that I think people see it as. I would argue that it, it can reach that point, but I definitely think it can help make more articulate points, if I'm understanding you correctly, 
and sort of focus arguments and make them more precise and polished. And I think it's actually interesting and a little bit meta that when I go home and edit the podcast in a way that's sort of what I'm doing, that I'm taking out certain words that, that don't fit properly, or if Hector or I stall and say something incorrectly and then pause and repeat ourselves with more proficiency in what we were trying to communicate in the first place, I edit out that previous bit. The audience doesn't hear what I was originally trying to say or Hector. And I think that it's interesting because definitely some words are less useful. So I have, in a way, a closer relationship with censorship than maybe your average person would. But Hector, what do you think? Well, I mean, I wanted to add on to one point. Um, Armand, you, you talked about how nowadays the internet is full of message boards or rather like boards where you can post information and kind of have a conversation and it's blocks of text at a time and you were talking about how there's a lot of you know for example YouTube is a poorly regulated website when it comes to having discourse because discourse tends to be it's kind of known you go on YouTube not looking for good conversation it's always almost it's just it's a little bit insane it, there is no regulation and people are talking about all sorts of topics for example you go uh, and watch a video about two rabbits bouncing around and all of a sudden it's talking about conspiracy theories in the comments what i wanted to get at was that you spoke about how negativity is used to stifle discourse but i think that another thing that i notice especially on websites for example youtube reddit which has become it's exploded uh, as a message board recently and even to some extent posts that people put up on Facebook, it's a lot of inane stuff or just stuff that really means nothing. It's just kind of useless information, be it uh, pop culture references or maybe somebody talking about conspiracies or, you know, all these things, but basically junk information, which end up stifling conversation and sometimes, you know, confusing people. And I think one of the negative aspects about this junk that infiltrates these message boards is that conversation, instead of being placed in a single forum, it separates and all of a sudden people are lost online you know we're still talking about this you know online field people get lost and then all of a sudden somebody doesn't know you know where to go on the internet to discuss how to uh, garden in their backyard if they live in New York or how to build a guitar because there's all this junk that's there as well that just stifles the conversation so much I don't know if you ever see that as well I would absolutely agree with that idea just in the sense that like for most authority, we tend to go to a established website, be it New York Times, The New Yorker, or any other really great online source in media. And we rarely go to YouTube videos. I mean, some, some do, of course. But I think the point with that notion is to consider how our generation especially, the millennial generation, has transitioned fully, for the most part, arguably at least, into uh, the internet and how at first, at least for many early millennials, it was very difficult to understand because many, I think, would go to obscene sites thinking like, I have the freedom to do this. But then we see how that freedom has grown and now we start having problems which even affect us in a small community here. Case in point, Yik Yak. When you mention more established sources like The New Yorker, do you think there's a possibility that censorship exists not only in what people take away, but in the fact that people's attentions are drawn to certain places like the New Yorker in, in its existence things like the New Yorker or just larger sources that maybe people find more credible are censoring smaller sources because people don't consider them when they're looking for that argument or looking for that dialogue that just by the fact that this Titan exists people don't consider the little guy do you think that's a possibility I think so in the sense that those sources build 
a discourse in the sense that like you read about oh I don't know say ISIS for example and you get informed you're informed by that source and then you maybe take that source in a discussion with your amongst your peers whereas a place like Yik Yak where negative posts say such as quote disclaimer by the way obscene language will be said so I hope this does not offend anyone quote at Crozier or something along those lines. That stifles anything because it's just such an obscene comment that there's really no way to even like go with that. That's not even a point or anything like that. It's just it's just something someone can say and it's guised and protected in a lot of ways by anonymity. Now what does that mean for us though? I think it's a bigger question and I would like to know your opinions really. So you're asking about the inclusion or the existence of just inane negative comments that don't even seem to have an argument and, and our opinions on those? Well, I think that a danger of the internet is that it, it is this megaphone for anyone who wants to use it. And so I think that people who have like raw emotion that they feel like expressing find reason to express it on the internet. And I think that oftentimes it's to get a rise or to try and get a response because I think a big piece of censorship to me is that we not only write our thoughts down, but other people read them. It's the method of communication that's pervasive in our society. And I think that people observe great writers and great speakers who really stir their audiences and their readership with the things that they say and they try to do it in a very concise albeit crude way and I think that's part of the problem the vocabulary is perhaps at the crux of this if you educate people on the right things to say or at least how to better express their opinions I think a big thing that happened recently with Yik Yak to make it a bit more of an endemic issue is that I, I spoke to a few people who were targeted on sites like Yik Yak and it wasn't that they denied any fault in their organizations, but just that they felt the expression of hatred and anger didn't encapsulate a legitimate idea or an articulate argument. And they felt if someone had something critical to say, they should come forward and try and make that argument or express why they had a problem with the organization in the first place. And so I think that's part of it. People are impatient. They don't really have the courage to say to the person's face or the organization as a whole, this is what we disagree with. But I wish people did have that patience or that sense of legitimate conversation and a belief that they would be heard if they had something legitimate to say. I was just going to bring up one point that I, I think that at the same time, I think that the anonymity provided by Yik Yak reveals a certain part of, you know, our community and probably of the world community that exists, be it uh, anger or a uh, dark playfulness you know there can be many different motives for the original writings on this board and i think in a way it's healthy for this application to exist because here we are talking about it and here we are forced to look at it head on i think it's important to look at a lot of what's been going on in the world and culture with comics, people, celebrities, politicians, even our maybe classmates have been saying and how people are upset by that. Like for example, racial slurs and such. Those are absolutely wrong to say and offend people, rightly so. And people who are offended have the right to be mad and express a critique of that. But where it gets really murky and complicated is, does that validate that? Is that actually confronting it? Or are we then stuck in this nebulous web in which we then fall victim to the same thing that maybe the person who expressed a negative idea had? 
I personally am of the belief, although admittedly I'm not really a target for racial slurs or other very harsh language, and I think that is important to say that I'm not representative of people who are targeted. I personally think, as a broad belief of mine, that there are things that silence just won't solve, and we all admit that there are these horrible things and horrible tragedies, but I think the reason that we have things like news stations and other publications that share some of the dark aspects of the world is that we have to have a dialogue about some of these things. And we also should recognize that at the end of the day, the dialogue might not lead to a conclusion or to any conclusive elements, but we'll recognize things in ourselves in the act of actually having the dialogue and discussing something. And so I think certain things should be said, or at least should be talked about. Why are we so offended by these words? these slurs and what do they mean in a cultural context where have they come from and are we giving them power by sort of treating them with this weird reverence in a way and I again acknowledge that as a white male I only have so much legitimacy in talking about it and I'm completely aware of that but I do think that discussion is much healthier or at least more productive it's not always comfortable and I acknowledge that because there's some very offensive terms out there but I think we only give the words power by censoring certain things but that is my opinion absolutely and furthermore how far does that go how far does our censorship go rather in establishing this are we just becoming these neoliberal machines that can only say things that are proper and positive isn't that elitist in some ways and that separating in itself isn't that exclusive in its own right maybe so but one thing to acknowledge though is just how media is not only produced, but how it represents us. Clearly, art is in the representation of a artist's idea. So the internet should be taken the same way, I think. There's, in fact, a media studies scholar at the University of West Ontario, uh, one of the few academics to actually study commercial content moderation, uh, Sarah Roberts. And she says very, very well, um, it goes on to our misunderstandings about the internet and our view of technology as being somehow magically not human. We want to separate our creation from us, but in doing so, we look at it and we look at it very hard and think, wow, can't, I can't believe someone said that. But we, we had to take into account that that is very human still. You know, these negative ideas, anger, what may be emoted. And while it may disturb us, it is still coming from another person in our larger human community. Now, does censorship regulate discourse and build? Or does it stifle it as well? That's another question to maybe consider. I would like to introduce this term of soft censorship in the terms of not having a authoritarian, say, government say, oh, okay, this cannot go. Because that would just lead to, I think, more problems, if anything, right? We've experienced that before and throughout our human history. I think soft censorship, I don't know if it's been introduced or not, but what I'm claiming to be soft censorship is being able to confront an idea and immediate upon it something out of it, as opposed to just leaving it and putting it under the rug of anonymity or say, oh, well, I don't agree with that. I think this A, B, and C, and then leave it like this, that. I'm not sure how to really properly inhabit that mode or instill it within our community, but I do think it's something worth considering in terms of just how to go back earlier in the discussion how discourse itself, discourse we're having right now, is regulating and shaping our ideas as we listen grow in this new community, or rather in this new world that is so closely entwined with the internet. I also wanted to bring up um, this topic of uh, 
I don't know if this also has to do with soft censorship, but self-censoring. And what I mean by self-censoring is keeping yourself from talking about something, keeping yourself from bringing up a certain topic, keeping yourself from emoting or keeping yourself from uh, expressing certain emotions about a subject because you're afraid that, you know, somebody's going to judge you or somebody's going to make fun of you or rather think you're not interesting or any number of things. You know, this is kind of a strange uh, callback, but it, I think about being in middle school and I remember, you know, I would always be raising my hand as a young boy. I would always be raising my hand. I would always want to answer the question. I had this, you know, urge to try to pick at the answer, if at, you know, or, or try to get it. But it was not cool to know the answer. It was not cool to raise your hand all the time. And so I was made fun of and like I was not cool because I answered all these questions. And I remember, and I might have spoken about this in a previous podcast, I stopped asking questions for a long time. And I think that, you know, that was way back in my middle school years, 10 years ago. I still sense that there is censorship that happens in conversations uh, between people. I have conversations here at Kenyon sometimes where I am in a way, you know, not not explicitly asking for an argument, but I want to talk about, you know, a bigger subject, be it ISIS or the conflict in Ukraine. And sometimes I find that, you know, I will say something that might seem a little extreme or I guess conspiratorial or, you know, weird and not often spoken about. And I've often had in response, you know, people will say, ah, you know, let's talk about something else or, oh yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting. And then that's the end of the conversation right there. It's my, my word is the last one. And so I don't know, maybe do you have any experiences with self-censorship and perhaps we can uh, talk about that now? Absolutely. In, in fact, a uh, funny thing you bring up like younger selfhood and stuff or, and how that maybe conditions our discourse in a way that maybe we may not like or may like depending on who we're socializing with. So get this, my background is Roman Catholic. My mother was very, very conservatively Roman Catholic. And I recall as a young boy in first grade hearing uh, a boy and a girl in my class say curse words. And at the time, I was so unknowingly ingrained in, in Catholicism that I remember saying to myself, oh God, I can never say these words, and saying to them, you should repent, essentially. Mm -hmm. I said in a very like innocent way, though, like, God doesn't like that. <laughs> and then I remember thinking one of the, I remember like replaying the word in my head and thinking, oh my God, I just thought this thought. And then I remember closing my eyes and in fact praying on the spot to God to repent. I mean, I was like in first grade, I was so young and naive, you know. But it's interesting though, because how does how do our backgrounds and sensibilities condition us as well as how we then enter into like a place, say like Kenyan? Like for instance, my background in Houston, Texas, and my public up high school upbringing, not, you know, not to distinguish myself or anything, not, nothing like that I mean to say here, but um, I definitely came into Kenyan pretty naive of sociability and how that functions and how that identifies you and then also the compromise between what you were and what you're going to become through sociability. So it's only until really recently that I've taken that deeply into account with regard to just how, I don't know, how conversation is brought up and the right time to talk about things. At the same time, when is the right time? 
That's a very good question. I think often the right time never seems to come because we're so nervous about whether or not it is the right time. We keep asking those questions in our heads. And I think that when Hector talks about ceasing, you know, the asking of questions, that it's because you're nervous of how other people are perceiving you. And I think in a, a weird way, the positivity or the search for positivity that I think everyone is complicit in, the desire to be happy as a community, as an individual, causes us to censor the sad topics. And I think Ironically enough, those are the most important things to talk about because we don't need to learn some of the more positive things because it's human nature to enjoy the positivity of whatever you're going to talk about that's positive. But we do need to solve certain crises and certain problems that are more complicated and maybe not the most fun to talk about. But one of my least favorite phrases that I hear all too often whenever I bring up difficult things is that people respond by saying, oh, that's too real. And I hate that because reality is where we are. It's the thing that we all share, and it's how we live our lives. And the fact that the phrase implies you want to distance yourself from reality is a bit troubling because the rest of us are still going to be here in reality, dealing with the problems of reality and the joys of reality. And so I think self-censorship is very interesting. I think often it's because of social pressure to have a positive dialogue and to seem positive all the time. And I, I'm all for optimism. I'm all for being positive. But... I think it is is a bit ignorant when you act like certain problems don't exist because you don't talk about them. And I think that it's censorship, I think, is in many ways a call to be brave and to bring up certain topics that might seem too big or too daunting. Because if no one talks about them, they're not going to go away. That's why they're big problems, and it's probably why they've been allowed to get as bad as they are, whatever you're talking about, be it political or global or whatever. Talking about the right time, I feel like part of it's also the right people. And you have to know who you can talk to. And so I'm especially glad that we have conversations like the one we're currently having in which you get people together because you know they're willing to talk about things. And even if they don't share your ideas, that you find a nice space in which you can actually have a dialogue and allow for a bit of disagreement if it happens. Because I think that's another big part of censorship, the idea that if you disagree with someone, you're going to clash with them, you're going to fight with them. And someone has to win. I think that, that you know you can agree to disagree, and that's very healthy. And it will promote dialogue. Like I talked about earlier, you have the discourse, and it's not with a desire to conclude something, but with the opportunity in mind of reflecting upon what's been said and what it says about who you are. So I would argue if we're going to try and conclude anything about the right time, you often have to make it. Maybe you will be lucky enough to be presented with a form in which to say the thing that you're feeling. But if that doesn't happen, I say don't wait. If you have something that you feel like you need to say, chances are there's someone else out there who's also afraid to say that thing and I think that's the scary part of censorship when we all have the same idea but no one has vocalized it and so it lays dormant and goes away yeah it's troubling but that's what I think about the right time yeah it's I guess to lead to our conclusion maybe how censorship the idea of it and of course these topics that we're touching about that abstracts it and maybe expands our definition of it which I really appreciate by the way how censorship can alienate us, but also how we alienate ourselves from maybe pursuing something else, or thinking of the right time, or how we appear in sociability, the social world that we inhabit. And to build on this, maybe, or rather, I think it's really great to consider how maybe this is effective. Is this effective? What are the results? And I would say, as we had just literally talked about all of this just now within these 30 nearly 30 minutes that this is a result of maybe a regulation of discourse 
that can lead to something productive as opposed to no discourse at all. Yeah, I agree. So we are approaching the 30-minute mark, but before we do that, do either of you have any closing thoughts on the topic? Well, I mean, I think another thing that we can talk about at another point is nowadays we have organizations, for example, WikiLeaks, whose sole purpose, at least when they began, was to bring out information, bring out retracted information out to the public. Same thing with Edward Snowden. I think somebody told me once that by removing information or in a way, you know, censoring information, uh, a sort of mysticism grows around the person where the information is being kept from. So, for example, uh, I remember, I think we were talking about the Pope, a lot of close-ups or close-ups were not allowed of Pope John Paul because he was so old that it was not desirable for people to see him in his old and frail state because that would almost ruin this illusion of who this person was of, of this uh, you know the the feeling people had about this person likewise for you know all these other notable figures that we see often in the newspapers and in photographs but perhaps we're heading towards an age where information and censorship is going to become a more precise issue I mean another thing to consider is the fact that you know we are in a time where a lot of our information if not all of our information that we input onto computers is being harvested in some way and people uh, in the current day are already taking measures of disconnecting in a way that is seen as quite extreme by the public for example being completely uh, disconnected from the internet being far away from you know cellular phones and all these other objects and so in a way that's I don't know I guess that's a, a another form of censorship in which you remove yourself from the populace or at least you remove your information from the populace but I guess that's another topic to be spoken of yeah when it comes down to it I would say you have to take into account the internet possesses so much fast knowledge at the same time possesses a lot of listless kind of just mundane or sad or negative information to whatever you want to call it rather comments even but in producing in producing these ideas that are being harvested as you said I think we have to understand what we harvest how we harvest it and maybe how it will grow and I think that's the age we're really entering now precision precision I think is something that we really need to take into account with wrestling with these complicated ideas I mean, case in point, Edward Snowden and, of course, WikiLeaks, I think were beneficial for us and our understanding of the world because that goes against maybe the authoritarian aspect of censorship. At the same time, maybe soft censorship or self-censorship can also regulate and um, move away from negative sensibilities in which we can then confront something that is a social problem. So before we close, Armand, do you have any questions for our audience? Anything you'd like to ask them? What do you want to hear in their potential responses to this episode? I would love to hear your opinion of your position within the Internet and society that is very much um, fueled by the Internet. I would love to hear your opinion about sociability and how it's reflected through the Internet and how that therefore may influence our sensibilities. And I would love to hear your opinion about all these points discussed overall very broadly. Well, we thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. 
and Hector, if commenters want to respond to some of the stuff that Armand brought to us, how would they reach us? Sure. Visit us on strideandsaunter.com. We can be reached at email, strideandsaunter at gmail.com. We are on Facebook. And finally, our Twitter page is stride and saunter. That's N, not and. So as always, in closing, from thought to word and voice to ear, this is Kip Clark signing off. And this is Hector Marrero. I'm wearing a moose on my sweater. <laughs>